We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. It's a scene that could be straight out of a dystopian novel. Protesters armed with bows and arrows and Molotov cocktails in a standoff with police. Pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong have stretched into their sixth month. They no longer resemble what they began as, thousands of people peacefully marching through the city. Over the months, these protests have spiraled into violent clashes. And Wall Street Journal reporter John Lyons has been on the ground watching their evolution. It was amazing to see how this movement had kind of transformed from being something that was centered on really peaceful mass marches back in June to the willingness to confront the police. Today on the show, one reporter's view inside the escalating violence of the Hong Kong protests. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaum. It's Thursday, November 21st. John decided to go out into the protest after a dramatic scene took place last week. Protesters had called for a citywide strike. They wanted to shut down businesses, schools, the subway. The morning that strike was to begin, young protesters kind of fanned out across the city, dressed in black, with a black surgical mask and hoods pulled over their heads often because they don't want to be caught on cameras. They fanned out at these different metro stations to stop the metro system, which is kind of the central nervous system of the whole city. At one of these metro stations, a police officer who was there drew his gun and engaged with this crowd in a chaotic way and ended up wrestling with one protester. And as he wrestled with one, he shot another, fired two more shots at a third protester. The police officer had shot and seriously wounded one of the protesters. And so a video of that began to circulate early in the morning that day. I mean, you were on the metro that morning and you could hear people watching the video, the sound of those gunshots playing throughout the cars. And that video, I think, added a real powerful dose of butane to the situation. The protesters shot by this police officer survived. But John watched as that video went viral and other protesters spread across the city, disrupting the subway system, clashing with police, and moving onto college campuses. And those campuses, over the course of the week, became the focal point of the protest movement. At one of them, Chinese University of Hong Kong, groups of protesters gathered and took over a bridge that was over a highway and started throwing things down on the highway to block the highway and, you know, cut off another means of transportation in the city. And they ended up having a a really fierce confrontation with the police there that night that went on for hours. And it was just so violent and going nowhere that the 
police ultimately decided to retreat. So the students won the first battle. They essentially did. I mean, they were kind of waiting on that bridge for a kind of a rematch with the police. And as they waited, John decided he wanted to see the scene up close. He made his way to the campus and arrived as the protesters were gearing up for the next clash. Outside the university on that day, the kids had gotten chainsaws and were cutting down trees to make barriers. What? Yeah, the university was now behind these giant barricades. There were lines of cars showing up with supplies for the students who had occupied the university to help them withstand a siege. Car after car, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, people like pulling out like giant bags of stuff they'd purchased, you know, food, towels, tents, you know, sleeping bags, toilet paper. The protesters weren't just getting things like toilet paper. They were also preparing for violence, getting their homemade weapons in place. Word was out among the supporters that one thing they needed were empty bottles to make Molotov cocktails. And people were riding bicycles in on a bike path with bag after bag of empty bottles. And, you know, the smell of alcohol on the bike path was really powerful because some people were just buying beer bottles and pouring out the beer <laughs> to create the empty bottles. There was a, a very steep stairway from the bike path that went up to the university and there was a human chain of like 120 people not the students these were like older hong kong people handing these bags up the stairs to get them up to the road where they could be brought into that university i had no idea i mean it's beyond just the students being militant there's this support network that is serving them and is equally organized and sophisticated in helping create this kind of ragtag, you know, army at some level. Absolutely. It's really interesting to see, especially in the light of the fact that China has said or tried to say time and time again that the protest movement here is being stirred up by foreign forces like the United States or the UK but in fact, it's this very organic, very local, very self-organized movement that cuts across society. And there are people that oppose it, but the ones that are supporting it are very, very committed. And they're taking a lot of risk to support these students. The Hong Kong protest movement initially began because of an unpopular bill that would have allowed Hong Kongers to be extradited to mainland China. That bill has since been withdrawn. But over the course of these protests, the protesters have expanded their demands. Among other things, they want direct elections and more police oversight. That demand for police oversight is largely fueled by the increasingly violent clashes that protesters and police have found themselves in. Clashes like the one John saw protesters preparing for. He said as their supplies arrived, protesters put them to use immediately, taking those hundreds of empty bottles and making Molotov cocktails. 
There was a little kind of manufacturing center being set up to uh, you know, fill empty bottles with accelerant and sugar and flour and uh, you know, seal them off wow. with wicks. Out on that bridge, they built these fortifications and rigged them to burn. The students had raided the athletic department. They had bows and arrows, javelins. You would see an occasional meat cleaver or a knife. As the night came on, they put on their helmets and gas masks and whatever tools that they'd amassed to, you know, take on the police. There was, you know, a kid walking by with a javelin, um, young woman with a bow and arrow standing on a ladder peering out over the highway. You know, she seemed to be consciously evoking the movie The Hunger Games with this very distinctive braid, you know, flipped over her shoulder. And as those protesters waited for the police with their homemade weapons, John talked with some of them. The protesters that I met are very, very young. Walking around the university, you know, the first thing you realize is that the people there are not all college students. I mean, there are 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds. I met 14-year-olds. They fervently believe that they are in kind of a last-chance struggle to save their future. It's a very, it almost reminds me of the, the 60s in the U.S., you know, this kind of generational shift in thinking. These kids feel like it's their time to fight. And, you know, the kind of things they would say to me is like, well, you know, my parents think it's good enough to just, you know, have a job and uh, make ends meet and, you know, have food on the table. And my generation wants more, you know, I want freedom, I want democracy, I want human rights. These protests have drawn more international attention as they've become increasingly violent. And some protesters see this as a good thing because of the pressure it puts on the government of Hong Kong. One 16-year-old protester, a guy who had covered his face with a blue surgical mask, told John, if we don't do anything, the world will forget us. He said, we can't let the world forget us. I think that goes to an idea that a lot of the protesters share, which is they can't do this by themselves, that they're kids in a city of seven million that is essentially faced off against a country of one and a half billion, and that without the support of major powers, their cause will be lost. One way they've been able to keep their cause alive is through the tactics they use. The ethos of this movement is be water. Water is famous fighting advice from the martial arts icon Bruce Lee. The idea is to have a formless fighting style, adapt, hit and run, which is what the Hong Kong protesters have adopted. John spent the night with the protesters, anticipating a repeat of that earlier clash with police. But that clash never came. The police didn't end up returning. And so like water, the protesters moved from one college campus to a different one. And John followed. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome back. 
After protesters left one college campus, they quickly moved to another one, Hong Kong Polytechnic University, and they took it over. When I showed up there, they had guards at the door. They called themselves a board, you know, hello, you know, you've reached the border crossing and they would check your ID and check your bag and you go in there. It was at that university, Polytechnic, where another massive conflict unfolded with the police outside that university. The police have sealed it off and kind of laid siege to that university. And there are still, as we're speaking right now, several young protesters hold up in there. We understand that some people still remain on the campus. We appeal to them to give up their weapons and leave the school in an orderly manner. We can assure you that anyone who leaves the school in a um, peaceful manner will receive a fair treatment. But, I mean, the question of what happens to those students and how, what kind of force or what methods the police will use to extract those students from the university is one that's hanging over the city right now. And it must terrify their parents. Yeah. I've been down at that university the last few days, and you see outside a perimeter groups of parents, tears in their eyes, begging police for information. Some parents even held a press conference of their own. We just want the police and the government don't condemn the youth in the campus. They just want to share, fight for freedom and justice. And secondly, all of the parents, they hope that their children can come out peacefully and safely. That's what we hope. John has traveled back and forth from the university since the police sealed it off. If the protesters surrender to police, they could be arrested for rioting, a charge that could lead to up to 10 years in prison. And as tensions have escalated between protesters and police in this same cycle of picking up and dying down, there's one question that's on everyone's mind. How do you see these protests resolving? You know, that's a really difficult question. That's something that I lay awake at night thinking about. You know, I've got my children here, my wife. I started out my career covering Argentina, which collapsed after mass protests. And we were in Brazil when the government fell because of protests. You know, in those cases, funnily enough, I mean, there was uncertainty, there was violence, but there was always a kind of a sense of what probably lay in the future because there was a political system there. You knew, okay, well, this party's in power. If they're going to fall, there's another party that will probably take power. You had a sense that there was something beyond these protests, that the government would eventually fall and there would be something new that would allow the society to pause, reset, and kind of move forward. Here, you don't have that. Hong Kong has some level of independence, but the city's leader is essentially appointed by China, an authoritarian state. This isn't a democracy. It's kind of the rubber stamp chief executive who is serving only one constituent, and that's China's leader, Xi Jinping. So what happens here is really just boils down to, you know, what is inside the mind of one man 
and that's something that we can't know. In a speech last week, China's leader Xi Jinping personally called on Hong Kong authorities to restore order to the city. Those comments sparked fear that if order isn't restored, there could be a crackdown, not by the local Hong Kong police, but by some mainland Chinese authority. John says the chances of that remain low, but are rising. That's all for today, Thursday, November 21st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to Jake Lapham, Cupid producer, and the Associated Press for audio of the Hong Kong protests. If you like our show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.